Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Tuesday. It is November the 19th, and as always, thank you so much for tuning in. On today's show, School District 73 met for its bi-weekly board meeting last night. Among their conversations, we're talking about graduation rates, uh, some significant improvements there um, here last year compared to previous years. So I'll be chatting with Board Chair Kathleen Karpuk about all of that and some other things that went down at their meeting uh, in a little bit. So stick around for that. And to end off today's show, I will be speaking on a new report entitled Fossil Futures, the Canada Pension Plan's Failure to Respect the one and a half degree Celsius limit. That report is dealing with the Canada Pension Plan and how it is invested and if it's being done so in a way to help meet those Paris climate agreements. But to begin today's show, I'm going to be talking about the subject of vaping as there is some initiatives going on here in the city to uh, help present to youth the dangers behind the, the practice of vaping and why it's something they shouldn't get involved in. Here to join me now is respiratory therapy faculty member at TRU, Allison Innes-Weens. Allison, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having us. And joined with us as well as respiratory student, Corey Croft. Corey, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. So maybe just start by telling me uh, about this presentation that you guys have sort of put together. What what uh, was it, I guess, that sort of launched this to, to start putting this together in the first place? So the, the rates of vaping have just shot up and the school district has noted it's an epidemic and so they wanted to try and have an initiative to get some education out there about the dangers of vaping so I connected with the health promotions coordinator and we've been working with a team with uh, respiratory therapy students and nursing students as well making this presentation and we're gearing it towards grade 7 all the way up to grade 12 just aiming not to provide judgment but to give some education and uh, give them what we know and what we don't know about vaping. And so you guys have done a few of these presentations now. When did you start uh, offering these? The uh, presentation started a couple weeks ago and we're done mostly by the fourth year nursing students and then the respiratory therapy program will be taking over from here on out to the rest of the school year into the next semester. And so we're almost done the grade seven classes in the district and we'll be moving on to grade eights. Um, so it started a couple of weeks ago. Can you tell me about the process or, or how long, I guess, it took to develop the, the presentation? When did you guys start looking at putting something together and then, you know, ultimately having culminate two weeks ago? Right. Uh, we've started in early September. Yeah, early September. Yeah, and we've been meeting about once a week for a couple of hours and then working on our own time as well to develop a collaborative slide deck and one that we can adapt to different age groups. And uh, we didn't start presenting till a couple weeks ago. Okay, and, and Corey, I guess you have been a part of these presentations, I guess. How have things gone so far for you guys? Um, well, I did my first presentation yesterday. Um, it was really good. The kids seemed really engaged. And at the end, we asked them if they felt that they had learned anything from our presentation. And every single one of them put their hands up. So. I guess, can you tell me a little bit about some of the things that you are teaching them? What is, uh, what's involved in this presentation? What are kids learning when they're coming to listen to you? Well, part of it is, I think, advertisement literacy, so giving them a bit more of an understanding of how it's marketed to them and less so to the adults who are using it to quit smoking and everything like that. And then we go a bit more into detail how their lungs function, how vaping can affect that, and how nicotine and THC and everything like that can affect their brains and bodies. Okay, and, and you mentioned THC, so we're talking about a lot more than just, uh, you know, the vaping that you buy from, from your typical store, I guess, as well. Yes. 
Okay. Um, I guess, did you, how did you guys go about figuring out what all should be incorporated in this? Was it a pretty difficult process to decide, you know, what should we be teaching them? What should we maybe be omitting or, or maybe waiting till later dates to kind of talk about? I guess, how did you go about kind of digging through all this information that's out there and, and deciding what should be presented uh, for, on an initial basis, I guess? It was really overwhelming, the amount of um, just trying to narrow down what we wanted to talk about. And so actually what we did was we did a scan throughout the district and asked five questions to see what the students most wanted to learn. So what they wanted to know about vaping, um, why they thought vaping was so appealing, so we could actually make our presentation the most uh, useful for them and so what they really wanted to know was what's in the e-juice and so we did a lot of research into that and just the more we did our research the more we uncovered more and more kind of shocking things and so we've just tried to we have a larger slide deck that, that we can use you know we'll take some slides out for the younger grades and then add them back in for the older grades that sort of thing. A uh, couple of follow-up questions there just within that. First of all, I mean, when you're talking about what makes vaping attractive to you, do you remember sort of any idea why or, or what it was about vaping? Whoever wants to answer this, um, you know, just what was it that, that is drawing kids into this practice? Do you have any ideas? That, what were some of the responses you guys received? Um, a lot of them said that there was a lot of peer pressure from their peers and a, a lot of the cool factor they found. Um, there's also, with the marketing, it's it's sweet, sugary flavors often in the vape juice, and that is more so marketed towards younger people. Um, yeah. So it is a lot of the flavors, too, that yeah. is getting them involved. Because okay, mm -hmm. I know, like, when we looked at uh, last, last week, the uh, BC Health Minister announced some, some new regulations that are being proposed, talking about putting some limits on flavor pods. And I, I, I don't know, I always wonder how big of a factor that actually is, because, you know, you're not going to necessarily pick up vaping just because you like strawberries, right? You're, you're going to do it because... You want to pick up the practice of vaping and then and then the strawberry flavors there so that might be the one you're attracted to but it's still it takes the action before the, the actual flavor right yeah well i think um some of the big issues that we found and something that's very alarming is that a lot of teenagers don't know that many of the vapes the brands like jewel that are very popular a lot of them don't know that it actually contains nicotine so when they start vaping they actually do think they're just vaping um you know a mango flavor or vanilla they don't realize that nicotine's in there and they don't realize that that's the chemical that's addictive so then they begin vaping and then they have a hard time stopping because then the nicotine uh, content is quite high in some of the starter kits and so it's actually the highest percentage of nicotine that you can get in the Juul and other starter kits. So basically it gets them hooked into the practice and there's just a lot of uh, misinformation out there. Um, I'm just curious because I'm not, I don't vape myself. I never have. And uh, I don't know too many people that do personally. Is, is that kind of information like nicotine levels, is that easily available or is that really hard to find out when you are, you know, looking at packaging and things like that? Um, they're a little bit tricky with the, with the packaging because sometimes it's measured in a percentage and sometimes it's measured in a concentration. It is on the package, but as the average consumer, you probably don't have any idea how much 59 milligrams per mil is and you know whether that's a large amount or not. That's the amount in the starter kit is 59 milligrams per mil, and that's actually three times the legal limit in the European Union. So these starter kits are being sold in convenience stores and very available to children, and it's three times the legal limit that the mm -hmm. European that the European Union allows, which is very very 
uh, very, very alarming. Yeah, and I know that was also part of last week's announcement as well, was putting limits on the, the amount of nicotine per uh, milliliter, which uh, obviously is something that people have been calling for as well, especially if you don't know uh, what's what's in there. It's probably a good thing that there is a limit. Um, I, I also wanted to ask, too, because you'd mentioned part of the presentation or part of the, the research that was done to put this together was talking about finding out what exactly was in uh, vaping liquid. I mean, I, I personally don't know. I mean, was it a difficult to figure out sort of what the chemical makeup of, of the substance is? And, and can you kind of maybe break it down a little bit for me? Um, yeah, so the typical components of e-liquid, there's carrier solvents. So these would be propylene glycol and vegetable glycerin, which um, those two ingredients themselves, they're safe to ingest, but there's no, there's no safety information for how they are when they're inhaled. Um, there's also the flavorings, and if you look at the package for um, vaping products, it only has usually four ingredients. Um, so it'll be the carrier solvents, and then it'll just say natural and artificial flavors and nicotine. And some of the most concerning things is that um, some of the chemicals in the flavors, those can be very harmful, but they don't actually list the components of each flavor, so you really don't know what you're getting. Um, as a respiratory student, Corey, I'm just curious, you know, when, you, when you're looking at some of this information, um, how surprising is it for you to see some of this stuff that, you know, is out there? I mean, uh, we are looking at the, the chemical makeup of vape juice and, and just finding out, you know, probably a lot of information that you didn't know when it comes to this particular product. Are, are you finding this to be a real learning, eye-opening experience as you kind of go through the process of, of putting this presentation together and teaching it to kids? And I'm sure you're learning a lot yourself. Yeah, so when I was making the presentation, I was very much very surprised by how little information there is out there and how complicated it can be sometimes to actually find the truth about it or like the less misleading way of mm -hmm. reading the, the nicotine content or whatever it might be. Um, so it was definitely a steep learning curve for sure. Um, can you guys tell me about uh, the, the process here moving forward? So you've started doing these presentations. It's been a couple of weeks. I guess what is the, the schedule looking like for you guys right now? Um, so we're going to be continuing to do a few presentations uh, this week and next, and then into the new year we'll get into the older grades. So we, we plan to try and get all of the grades in the district. So it'll be a big project and we'll be involving more respiratory therapy students in the new year, but uh, Corey and um, Dilraj will be mentoring, so those are uh, they'll be mentoring the presentations. And this is a pretty new initiative. Like I haven't heard of too much of this kind of thing going on. I know there's a lot of talk about vaping, but in terms of an actual education plan and, and outside uh, bodies, you know, going into schools and actually talking about the dangers of vaping, I haven't heard too too much of that actually happening. So um, I guess you know, kind of a almost a pioneer project here for you guys. Yeah, I think so. There is a there are some toolkits and education materials online for teachers. There's posters and there are PowerPoints available with the BC Lung Association and other um, other websites. But I don't think that there's any um, any major programs like ours or collaborations like ours yet. So we are, we are really hoping that that helps and the students have been very receptive. I think having um, you know respiratory therapy students and nursing students come in they're closer in age and so the students really really listen they're very engaged in the content and I think it is probably a bit more effective than just delivering a PowerPoint from from online. Has there has there been any pushback yet from students in any of the presentations you've given you only gave the one yesterday I guess so is it pretty well received by students? Yeah they were mostly just curious it seemed they wanted to know even more than what was in the 
presentation. They were asking questions throughout the whole thing. It was really cool to see. And so when you have that, when you have kids asking a bunch of questions and things maybe you don't have the answers to right away or just maybe aren't necessarily a part of the, the current uh, learning plan that's in place, uh, how, do you, how are you going about adjusting, I guess, as things move forward? Have you made some changes from the first presentation to yesterday and, and sort of how is this um, shaping and transforming as you guys move forward? It's changing every day, every week there's more information, every, every week there's an increase in the cases in the states. Um, so we kind of have to just deliver our presentation and say these statistics are out of date and if the kids ever ask a question that we don't have a solid answer to, we are just very honest and say, you know, we don't have the research yet because vaping hasn't been around long enough. Uh, we try and answer their questions as best we can and just be fully honest and upfront and give them all the facts. Yeah, definitely don't make up answers because that, exactly. uh, that won't be well received. Um, I guess just one more question here before I let you guys go. Just how are you gauging success of this program right now? If you found any idea of how you guys are evaluating the, the, the presentation as it stands? We are doing a feedback survey, so every class that we deliver it in, we have a, a link that the students can fill out and let us know how they like the presentation and how we can make it better. So we really are just trying to gear it towards what the students want, what they want to know about, and uh, trying to make it the, as effective as possible. Fantastic. Um, any idea when you guys will be completed doing the presentations at this point? Is there a schedule in place yet? There's not a firm schedule because we have to kind of book classes and make yeah. sure that the presenters and they've got university schedules. They're pretty sure. busy, so it, it can be tricky. Um, but we are hoping to finish all the classes by the end of next semester, I would, I would imagine. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, Corey, Allison, thank you guys so much for coming in. I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I hope this is well-received, and you guys are uh, not enjoying you in the presentation, but also making sure that people are learning some new stuff here. So thanks so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having thank us. You. Awesome. That was respiratory ther therapy faculty member at TRU, Allison Innes-Weens, and respiratory student Corey Croft. Uh, coming up after the break, I'll be talking with the chair of the Kamloops-Thompson School Board. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about vaping as well, so we'll continue that conversation after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show here on Tuesday, November the 19th. Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, I have uh, the chair of the Kamloops Thompson School Board, Kathleen Carbuck, in with me as usual following a board meeting. Kathleen, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to just start by uh, talking about the issue of vaping since I had it on my last segment here. So there is a, a three-part focused inquiry into the impact of vaping uh, underway here in Kamloops and School District 73 as part of this partnership with Interior Health and Thompson Rivers University on this project investigating ways to communicate to youth and adults about vaping. So maybe can I just ask how the school board got involved? I mean, it seems like a natural fit for the school board to want to be a part of this uh, inquiry that's taking place or this partnership that's ongoing to sort of discourage youth from taking up the habit of vaping. Um, I guess, why did you feel it was important for the board to be involved in this? School boards and school districts have always been involved with educating youth about public health issues. So drinking and driving, for example, was a big push back in the 1980s. Uh, smoking was a big push uh, after that. So it's just natural that vaping follows in that pattern. 
So we have educators who are teaching youth about vaping, and this time we've partnered with Thompson Rivers University with the Respiratory Therapists Program, and they are going and educating students about the risks around vaping. And, uh, I mean, it's obviously just sort of getting underway. Um, I had them on uh, previously here, but just, um, you know, any idea how you're going to be able to measure or gauge success of this program? That's going to be an ongoing process. We're uh, starting to try and gather some metrics right now around how many students are vaping. And so we'll use those numbers and hopefully what we'll see is a decrease in the number of students that are vaping. Okay. And this is basically a, a pilot, I guess, for this year to kind of see how uh, this program works and is developed and then can be shifted and altered as it moves forward? That's correct, yes. Perfect. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, I did want to ask about this as well because I talked to the uh, BC School Trustees Association last week following the uh, new health regulations that were announced by BC Health Minister Adrian Dix and, you know, the number of things that came up uh, for, for new proposed legislation, talking about, you know, increased taxes, uh, limiting where and how vape products can be sold and marketed, you know, bringing stricter guidelines when it comes to flavor pods. Uh, I assume that a lot of this stuff was, was some of the uh, things that the SD73 would have been calling for as well as just some, some stricter rules around. I guess how accessible some of these things are and were you pleased with the, with the announcement from, from last week? We were happy with the announcement. Um, it's something that we've needed in order to be able to um, work on getting the number of students who vape to, to, to decrease. Um, when you have a, health, a substance that has a health impact such as vaping, it's important to uh, have regulations around it that emphasize the health impact that it does have. So if it's freely available, that implies that there's no risk. By restricting it, uh, it does imply that, yes, it needs to be monitored and it's something to be careful of. And that goes into the education part. So let's get into last night's school board meeting here. One of the bigger things presented at last night's meeting was graduation rates. You guys took a, an in-depth look at the 2018-19 school year. Can you maybe give me a quick rundown or a quick summary, if you will, of sort of what those graduation rates are for last year and, and how things are looking here moving forward? So we've had some of our best completion rates ever uh, posted last year. So our overall completion rate for the district... Uh, for the 2018-19 uh, year was 88.3%. When we take uh, international students out of that number, our completion rate for resident students is at 92.5%. And our Aboriginal graduation rate was at 84.1%, which is where our all-student rate was last year. Wow. So very, very happy with those results, especially when we look back seven years and we look at our rates then, our completion rate for all students was only 78% seven years ago. And our Aboriginal uh, co completion rate was 66% seven years ago. So we've had some massive gains. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty exponential improvement here over the last seven years. Is there anything in particular that uh, the school board is attributing that to? We've been working on a number of things. Um, one of the programs that we put in place about seven years ago was our completion coordinator. And that's a person whose job it is, is to basically go around and look at every student that does not complete high school in the five years that normally they would take and find out why and then connect them back with the school so that they can graduate. Because our rates, we have six years to graduate a student. 
And so when we have someone who doesn't manage to graduate at five years, we've got one more year to get them graduated in order to uh, to count in these rates. And sometimes it's as simple as they're missing a PE10. Sometimes they just need one elective or one or two assignments that didn't get handed in. And so finding an alternate way for students to be able to complete. Um, is there a target, I guess, that you have? I mean, are these meeting the targets or you still have some targets to reach? Um, we are meeting our targets. Um, our target for our uh, resident students is to remain somewhere over 90%. Our goal is to be between or, may, or exceed between 90 and 95% graduation rate for resident students, uh, between 85 and 90% for all students, knowing that international students aren't always here to graduate, they go home, and to eventually get to parity for our Aboriginal students, and we're very close to that. So uh, just curious when you're talking about then uh, with international students, if they're not here to graduate, why are they being counted in this? Because every time we register a student, they get assigned an identification number. And that number then goes to count towards how we're doing as a system. And sometimes it's a bit of a challenge to try and pull those numbers out when everything's lumped together, which is why we have the three different sets of numbers. Okay, yeah. Makes sense that uh, you would have that uh, sort of separated. It's just kind of skews the numbers when you're looking at overall rates a little bit if someone moves away and isn't here to graduate. Um, anything else that you wanted to highlight there when it comes to the graduation numbers? Just that we're very pleased with them. Um, again, uh, very happy. Our Aboriginal rate was uh, this year 84%. That was the rate for all students last year. It means we're very, very close. I'm still working on, on parity, of course, but uh, it looks like progress is definitely being made and you guys are slowly starting to, to get there. So that's good news for sure. Um, also, the capital plan update was presented. Um, so this is sort of, I guess, a smaller piece of the, the puzzle from yesterday's meeting, but uh, new bus required after an engine failure in September. Um, I guess just can you tell me what, what happened there? Uh, so the bus had a what is described as a catastrophic engine failure. Basically, we needed to replace the entire engine. Uh, when we looked at the cost of replacing the engine and the labor involved, it was almost the same as a new bus. We took that business case to the ministry, and they decided to provide us with a new bus. Is that something that happens very often? I assume buses don't break down too frequently, but uh, I mean, is this something you've had to really deal with in your time, I guess, as board chair? This is the only time that I have actually heard of one of our buses having catastrophic engine failure in about 11 years. So extremely rare. We have some absolutely amazingly talented mechanics at our bus garage. They inspect our buses on an extremely frequent uh, rate and uh, maintain our buses to an extremely high standard. And I apologize if I'm uh, asking something you don't know off the top of your head, but do you know what the average lifespan of a bus would be? Yeah, this one was uh, about 365,000 kilometers on it. Do you know what uh, the average bus would, would be able to handle? Uh, so I know that we have both a uh, age uh, limit for mm -hmm. buses, the number of years that they can be on the road, plus a kilometer limit. And so it depends on the bus as to how old or how far it goes before it gets pulled off the road and out of service. Okay, so it might depend on which route it, or which school it's attending. That makes perfect sense. Perfect. Um, I think that was pretty much it. About 50000 was quoted for the engine core repairs, replacement 140000 Did I get that right? Something like that? 
that's pretty close, yes. Okay, perfect. Um, moving on, I guess, leadership development program. Tell me a little bit about this. This is, uh, you know, helping to uh, uh, create some new leaders, I guess, within our, our school system. Uh, tell me, what is the leadership development program, I guess, for those who are unaware? So our leadership development program has been something that we've been doing in this district for 51 years. So it's a long-standing program. It is basically a program, a two-year program, where teachers that are interested in finding out what it's like to become a principal or a vice principal are given a block or two in their school day that they are able to work on learning how administration works. And we pair that with some courses that they can take up at Thompson Rivers University. And this is an opportunity for them to learn some of the leadership skills that they need in order to become good administrators. And I think it's paid dividends in our district. You just have to look at the quality of leaders that we have in our district. The majority of our administrators have gone through the LDP program. And I think it shows, and uh, you just have to look at our completion rates. Um, I guess, uh, what, what is the success rate like? Do you know how many people would, uh, percentage-wise, potentially, would go on to take this program and then actually move on to be administrators? Uh, we have a fairly high rate of people that uh, go through the LDP program and then eventually move into becoming administrators. So it's a fairly small cohort of people. It's usually only seven or eight people per year. And uh, they go through the program and decide whether or not this is something that they want to pursue. And uh, then they become available for us for a pool of principals and vice principals as we need them. Perfect. Um I think that's probably it for questions for you right now, Kathleen. Anything else you want to add before I let you go? I uh, know. I think that's everything. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming in as always. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. Great. That was SD73 Board Chair Kathleen Karpak. Coming up after the break, I'll be joined by James Rowe, a Victoria University professor who helped write a report on how the Canadian pension plan maybe isn't investing with our future in mind. opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. Climate change, uh, you know, the election may be over, but that doesn't change the fact that uh, climate change is still a discussion that needs to be had, and it also doesn't change the fact that work needs to continue to be done to fight and reverse the impacts of climate change. A new report is out saying that the Canadian pension plan is somehow a contributing factor. I am joined now by Victoria University Associate Professor of Environmental Studies and co-author of Fossil Fuels, the Canada Pension Plan's failure to respect the one and a half degree Celsius limit. Here is James Rowe. James, thanks so much for taking the time. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So maybe just start with uh, kind of explaining this to the listeners out there who maybe don't understand. I didn't really understand at first when I first read the headline, but it made sense as I kind of went through it. How is a pension plan, you know, kind of helping to contribute to, to climate change? What is it about a pension plan that is, you know, adding to the concerns that exist? So pension fan funds worldwide comprise over half of global investment capital. So they are significant investors. In Canada, the Canada Pension Plan is one of the largest pools of investment capital in the country at over $400 billion. And so the decisions it makes about where it's going to put its money has significant bearing on where our economy goes. 
And so in the report, we asked whether the CPP is Paris compliant. Are they investing with the 1.5 degree limit in mind? And unfortunately, we found that the answer is no. Uh, they've invested billions of dollars in the largest publicly traded oil, gas, and coal companies. And we found that the companies that CPP is invested in actually hold four times the amount of carbon that can be burned for us to stay within 1.5 degrees warming. And we argue that that's a major ecological risk, but it's also a major financial risk. Um, when you guys were going through your investigation here of, of this and kind of putting together some of the statistics, were you able to find out maybe how much, uh, you know, percentage-wise is being invested in, in, in fossil fuels? No. <laughs> and we'd like to know. Um, we, we focused in on their investments in the largest publicly traded oil, gas, and coal companies because that information is publicly available and we found that they do have billions of dollars invested in those firms. In terms of the proportion of their investments that are in fossil fuels, that's something we were not able to discern because the CPP's disclosure practices don't clarify the extent of their fossil fuel investments. And so that's one of our asks in the report is that they uh, clarify for the public the, uh, the extent to which uh, they are invested in fossil fuel companies. We have an understanding of the risk that they're exposed to. Okay, so how would you, I guess, define the responsibility of a pension plan when looking at its investments? What do you think, um, you know, the CPP should be doing? Um, you know, we're talking about a retirement fund here. So I guess looking, looking ahead, you know, for people who are, you know, looking to retire, um, I guess it should be kept in mind uh, when investing these funds, you know, the, the people's future who are going to depend on this money. Is that sort of what we're looking at here? When we're, I know we're talking about sort of the Canadian targets and the Canadian pension plan should be following in line with those targets, but just in terms of the overall responsibility of a pension plan, um, I would think it would ha they would should have the, the people who are going to benefit from that plan in mind, and that obviously uh, would include looking ahead to the future of, of those who are going to use it. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's ensuring retirement security for beneficiaries. That's the point of, uh, of pensions for sure. And, and our argument is that uh, the investments that the CPP is making in the largest emitters is actually imperiling our retirement security, not only in terms of uh, heightened or accelerated climate change, which is going to have all kinds of uh, economic and health effects, but in the shorter term, uh, there's a lot of financial risk associated with these investments. In the last week, we've seen the European uh, Investment Bank, which is the largest multilateral lender in the world, uh, announced divestment from fossil fuels for financial reasons. We saw the University of California, one of the largest universities in the world, announce that they were divesting entirely from fossil fuels in September on purely financial grounds. And the argument goes, uh, within the financial industry, the language that's used is stranded assets. In the, and, and the worry is, is that fossil fuel companies hold far more uh, oil, gas, and coal reserves than we can possibly burn to stay within 1.5 degree warming. And those uh, reserves are already factored into the uh, share prices of those companies. And so that means that the share prices of those companies are overvalued because we can't possibly burn all of their reserves unless we want to get to five, six degrees warming, which would be an utter uh, disaster. And so, you know, value destruction or asset destruction is coming. Assets will be stranded. 
And that's why we're seeing major investors starting to move now so they're not left holding the bag. And so we're asking the CPP to uh, follow suit from some of these other uh, large uh, financial institutions and begin attending to the financial risks of uh, climate change more adequately. Do you think that it's going to be really, really difficult to, to maybe see some of that transition? I know as I was going through your report, one of the, the things that kind of stood out to me a little bit was talking about how the fact that I believe one of the people who sits on the uh, Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board, uh, you know, is the managing director of uh, nine or sits on the board of nine oil and gas companies. Man, when you're looking at people who are, you know, sort of controlling where the money goes and they're sitting on, on these companies that they clearly have a stake in or, or some sort of uh, connection with, I mean, it sounds like it might be pretty difficult to, to alter uh, the way money is being invested at this point in time. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point. Like when we look at in the regions right now that are leading on addressing the financial risks associated with climate change, it's um, you know, Europe, uh, New York, uh, California. These are all regions that are not large oil and gas uh, producers. Canada is a large oil and gas producer. I think that's one reason why we're lagging behind on making the needed moves to buffer ourselves from stranded asset risk. And the industry has significant influence in this country. Colleagues of mine from the Canadian Centre of Policy Alternatives released a report uh, last week showing that the oil and gas industry is the largest lobbyist in Canada. Over the last uh, 10 years, an average of six lobby visits to the government per day, uh, totaling over 11,000 lobby visits. It gives you a sense of who uh, who's being listened to and, and who uh, isn't. Um, in... Um, and then similarly, as you mentioned, uh, the oil and gas industry also has a place on the board of the CPP, where a number of their board of directors are also on the boards of fossil fuel companies. And so there's a direct material interest uh, there that's challenging. And I think that's something that we also wanted to shine a light on in this report. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had someone on a couple of weeks ago talking about that exact report about the oil lobbyists and uh, definitely some interesting information there as well. I'm here with James Rowe, University uh, Victoria Associate Professor of Environmental Studies and co-author of this report uh, talking about fossil futures, the Canada Pension Plan's failure to respect the one and a half degrees Celsius limit. Um, what are some of the recommendations that you guys are making here moving forward? I know you sort of touched on them a little bit and sort of how we're going to go about uh, potentially changing the way the CPP is being invested at this time. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a, a plan in place or a few steps that you guys have put out here in this report. I guess, can you just kind of go over what some of those recommendations are? Yeah, we want them to carry out a, a portfolio-wide risk analysis in the context of the climate emergency. Uh, and so that's basically just clarifying the extent of their exposure to fossil fuel assets and then make that information publicly available. We, we in this report are focusing on what we were able to find, uh, but they obviously have all the information, much of which they're not disclosing, and so that needs to be made public. Uh, we also recommend uh, starting the process of divestment, which is freeze new investments now, and then start a staged uh, process moving forward. And so again, as I mentioned, uh, Concordia University divested, and they put 2025 as their target date, and so this doesn't have to happen immediately. This can be a staged process, but I think it needs to start happening uh, now. We also ask the CPP to actually start becoming a strong advocate for climate action in that if 
if we if we surpass 1.5 degrees warming, that is going to have not only huge ecological impact, it's going to have massive economic consequences. It's going to be uh, very challenging for beneficiaries. And so it's actually in the interest of the CPP to be ensuring that we stay within that 1.5 degree range and uh, don't unsettle the sort of fundaments of our economic system um, moving forward. And so those are some of the major uh, recommendations that we make. We also recommend that the government itself uh, change laws such that uh, the, uh, Cal the state of California just passed a law uh, requiring their public pensions to disclose uh, their climate risk or the financial risk associated with climate change. And so we think the Canadian government should do the same so that the CTP is required to report uh, on this um, uh, regularly. And I guess the last thing I, I would say is that you know, 60% of Canadians uh, voted in the last election for strong action on climate change. And so Canadians clearly care about this issue. And so I think they would like to know that uh, a significant amount of the retirement savings are being invested in some of the largest emitters. And it doesn't end there. The CTP also invests in weapon manufacturers, also invests in tobacco companies. Uh, it's not clear that these particular investments are aligned with the values of Canadians. So we think there needs to be a broader public conversation. Yes, of course, we all want to secure our retirement, um, but we also want our investments to be aligned with our, with our values. I guess, uh, you know, with if, if some of those steps aren't taken, you made a, a, a long list of recommendations within there. Um, I'm just curious what you would think would happen, you know, if some of those investments or some of those changes, excuse me, are not made here in the near future. I guess, what kind of risk do you think uh, is associated with the CPP just continuing to maintain status quo? I mean, uh, you know, there's the, the, the lawsuit on behalf of young Canadians that we're seeing that, uh, you know, has been filed against Ottawa at this point in time. I mean, do you think that, uh, you know, something like a pension plan could put, be be susceptible to a lawsuit, uh, you know, along the similar lines. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that um, I think we'll probably see it happen if they don't if they don't act. Uh, yeah, a lawsuit brought on behalf of young uh, Canadians who are beneficiaries, and that the the plan has as much a responsibility to uh, folks who are starting to pay into the plan now as young workers as it does to those who are exiting the plan uh, right now as they retire. And currently, uh, the, the sort of range of investments seems to be weighted more towards those exiting and mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be attending to those who are filling the streets on climate strikes uh, in September who are, who are entering the plan. And so, we, we, yeah, we could see uh, a lawsuit. We could also just see uh, financial losses. Uh, a report just came out from Corporate Knights where they analyzed uh, California's uh, massive public uh, pension funds and found that um, over the last five years, they lost over $18 billion by staying invested in fossil fuel companies. And currently, divested portfolios are performing better than portfolios with fossil fuels in them. And so money is getting lost as, as, as long as we're not taking action. Well, James, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's definitely some interesting information. And uh, yeah, like I said, a, a pension fund, uh, how it was being invested wasn't even something I would have uh, thought about when talking about uh, the, the issue of climate change. So definitely some interesting information. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on with me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Awesome. That was James Rowe, Victoria University Associate Professor of Environmental Studies and co-author of Fossil Futures, the Canada Pension Plan's Failure to Respect the One and a Half Degree Celsius Limit. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 9.